Is there a book you'd really love for me to read on the Sleepy Bookshelf? Go to our website at sleepybookshelf.com to submit your ideas and vote on upcoming books. Good evening and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm your host, Elizabeth. Thank you for coming to the bookshelf tonight. This evening we'll be returning to Jane Eyre. But before we do that, as usual, take some time to settle in. Begin by breathing deeply in through your nose and out through your mouth. Bring your awareness to your right hand. Touch your thumb to your index finger. Thumb to your middle finger. Thumb to your fourth finger. Thumb to your little finger. And now back again. Thumb to fourth finger. Thumb to middle finger. Thumb to index finger. Now relax your hand. Next, become aware of your left hand. And again, touch your thumb to your index finger. Thumb to your middle finger. Thumb to your fourth finger. Thumb to your little finger. And now back again. Thumb to fourth finger. Thumb to middle finger. Thumb to index finger. And relax your hand. Last time, St. John had just asked Jane to marry him and to travel with him to India as a missionary's wife. She knew the proposal was not for love, and while she did want to help him, she could not be his wife. She told him she would go with him, but as a cousin or a sister. He explained that wouldn't be possible and tried every way to persuade her. To Jane, travelling to India would be her death, and she was still in love with Mr. Rochester. He told her he would give her a week to make a final decision. In the meantime, he gave Jane the cold shoulder, and eventually she went to him to appeal that they should be friends again. He asked her a final time what she wished to do, and she again confirmed that her mind was made up. She would indeed go to India and help him in his mission if he still wished her to go, but she would not marry him. St. John walked away from her, dissatisfied. And so we pick back up tonight, Jane coming back into the parlour after her fraught discussion with St. John. So just try to relax and listen to the sound of my voice 
as I turned to the next pages of Jane Eyre. Chapter 35 continued. On re-entering the parlour, I found Diana standing at the window, looking very thoughtful. Diana was a great deal taller than I. She put her hand on my shoulder and, stooping, examined my face. Jane, she said, you are always so agitated and pale now. I'm sure there is something the matter. Tell me what business you and St. John have on your hands. I've watched you this half hour from the window. You must forgive my being such a spy, but for a long time, I have fancied I hardly know what. St. John is a strange being. She paused. I did not speak. Soon she resumed. That brother of mine cherishes peculiar views of some sort respecting you, I'm sure. He has long distinguished you by a notice, an interest he has never showed to anyone else. To what end? I wish he loved you. Does he, Jane? I put her cool hand to my hot forehead. No, Di, not one whit. Then why does he follow you so with his eyes, get you so frequently alone with him, and keep you so continually at his side? Mary and I had both concluded he wished you to marry him. He does. He has asked me to be his wife. Diana clapped her hands. This is just what we hoped and thought. And you will marry him, Jane, won't you? And then he will stay in England. Far from that, Diana. His sole idea in proposing to me is to procure a fitting fellow labourer in his Indian toils. What? He wishes you to go to India? Yes, I replied. Madness, she said. You would not live three months there, I am certain. You shall never go. You have not consented, have you, Jane? I have refused to marry him, and have consequently displeased him, she suggested. Deeply. He will never forgive me, I fear. Yet I offered to accompany him as his sister. It was frantic folly to do so, Jane. Think of the task you undertook. One of incessant fatigue where fatigue kills even the strong, and you are weak. St. John, you know him, would urge you to impossibilities. With him there would be no permission to rest during the hot hours, and unfortunately I have noticed, whatever he exacts, you force yourself to perform. I am astonished you found courage to refuse his hand. Do you not love him then, Jane? Not as a husband, I answered. Yet he is a handsome fellow, she said. And I am so plain, you see, Di. We should never suit. Plain? You? Not at all. 
Again, Diana earnestly conjured me to give up all thoughts of going out with her brother. I must indeed, I said, for just now when I repeated the offer of serving him for a deacon, he expressed himself shocked at my want of decency. He seemed to think I had committed an impropriety in proposing to accompany him unmarried, as if I had not from the first hoped to find in him a brother and habitually regarded him as such. What makes you say he does not love you, Jane? You should hear himself on the subject. He has again and again explained that it is not himself, but his office he wishes to make. He has told me I am formed for labor, not for love, which is true, no doubt. But in my opinion, if I am not formed for love, it follows that I am not formed for marriage. Would it not be strange, I, to be changed to life to a man who regarded one but as a useful tool? Insupportable, unnatural, out of the question, she replied. And then, I continued, though I have only sisterly affection for him now, yet if forced to be his wife, I can imagine the possibility of conceiving an inevitable, strange, torturing kind of love for him, because he is so talented, and there is often a certain heroic grandeur in his look, manner, and conversation. In that case, my lot would become unspeakably wretched. He would not want me to love him, and if I showed the feeling, he would make me sensible that it was a superfluity, unrequired by him, unbecoming in me. I know he would. And yet, St. John is a good man, said Diana. He is a good and great man, and he forgets piteously the feelings and claims of little people in pursuing his own large views. It is better, therefore, for the insignificant to keep out of his way, lest in his progress he should trample them down. Here he comes. I will leave you, Diana. And I hastened upstairs as I saw him entering the garden. But I was forced to meet him again at supper. During that meal, he appeared just as composed as usual. I had thought he would hardly speak to me, and I was certain he had given up the pursuit of his matrimonial scheme. The sequel showed I was mistaken on both points. He addressed me precisely in his ordinary manner, or what had of late been his ordinary manner, one scrupulously polite. No doubt he had invoked the help of the Holy Spirit to subdue the anger I had aroused in him, and now believed he had forgiven me once more. For the evening reading before prayers, he selected the twenty-first chapter of Revelation. It was at all times pleasant to listen while from his lips fell the words of the Bible. 
Never did his fine voice sound at once so sweet and full. Never did his manner become so impressive in its noble simplicity as when he delivered the oracles of God. And tonight, that voice took a more solemn tone, that manner a more thrilling meaning, as he sat in the midst of his household circle, the May moon shining in through the uncurtained window and rendered almost unnecessary the light of the candle on the table. As he sat there, bending over the great Bible and described from its page the vision of the new heaven and the new earth, told how God would come to dwell with men, how he would wipe away all the tears from their eyes and promised that there should be no more death, neither sorrow, nor crying, nor any more pain, because the former things were passed away. The succeeding words thrilled me strangely as he spoke them, especially as I felt by the slight, indescribable alteration in sound that in uttering them, his eye had turned on me. He that overcometh shall inherit all things, and I will be his God, and he shall be my son. But was slowly, distinctly read, the fearful, the unbelieving, shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Henceforward, I knew what fate St. John feared for me. A calm, subdued triumph, bent with a longing earnestness, marked his enunciation of the last, glorious verses of that chapter. The reader believed his name was already written in the Lamb's Book of Life, and he yearned after the hour which should admit him to the city to which the kings of earth bring their glory and honor, which has no need of sun or moon to shine in it, because the glory of God lightens it and the Lamb is the light thereof. In the prayer following the chapter, all his energy gathered, all his stern zeal woke. He was in deep earnest, wrestling with God and resolved on a conquest. He supplicated strength for the weak-hearted, guidance for the wanderers from the fold, a return, eleventh hour, for those of whom the temptations of the world and the flesh were luring from the narrow path. He asked, he urged, he claimed the boon of a brand snatched from the burning. Earnestness is ever deeply solemn. First, as I listened to that prayer, I wondered at his. Then, when it continued and rose, I was touched by it, and at last, 
awed. He felt the greatness and goodness of his purpose so sincerely. Others who heard him plead for it could not but feel it too. The prayer over, we took leave of him. He was to go at a very early hour in the morning. Diana and Mary, having kissed him, left the room. In compliance, I think, with a whispered hint from him, I tendered my hand and wished him a pleasant journey. Thank you, Jane. As I said, I shall return from Cambridge in a fortnight. That space then is yet left for you to reflect. If I listened to human pride, I should say no more to you of marriage with me. But I listen to my duty and keep steadily in view my first aim, to do all things to the glory of God. My master was long-suffering, so will I be. I cannot give you up to perdition as a vessel of wrath. Repent, resolve while there is yet time. Remember, we are bid to work while it is day, warned that the night cometh when no man shall work. Remember the fate of Dives, who had his good things in life. God gives you strength to choose that better part which shall not be taken from you. He laid his hand on my head as he uttered the last words. He had spoken earnestly, mildly. His look was not, indeed, that of a lover beholding his mistress, but was that of a pastor recalling his wandering sheep, or better, of a guardian angel watching the soul for which he is responsible. All men of talent, whether they be men of feeling or not, whether they be zealots or aspirants or despots, provided only they be sincere, have their sublime moments when they subdue and rule. I felt veneration for St. John, veneration so strong that its impetus thrust me at once to the point I had so long shunned. I was tempted to cease struggling with him, to rush down the torrent of his will into the gulf of his existence and there lose my own. I was almost as hard beset by him now as I had been once before, in a different way, by another I was a fool both times. To have yielded then would have been an error of principle. To have yielded now would have been an error of judgment. So I think at this hour, when I look back to the crisis through the quiet medium of time, I was unconscious of folly at the instant. I stood motionless under my hierophant's touch my refusals were forgotten, my fears overcome, my wrestlings paralyzed. The impossible, my marriage with St. John, was fast becoming the possible. All was changing utterly with a sudden sweep. 
religion called, angels beckoned, God commanded, life rolled together like a scroll, death's gates opening showed eternity beyond it. It seemed that for safety and bliss there, all here might be sacrificed in a second. The dim room was full of visions. Could you decide now? asked the missionary. The inquiry was put in gentle tones. He drew me to him as gently. Oh, that gentleness, how far more potent it is than force. I could resist St. John's wrath. I grew pliant as a reed under his kindness. But I knew all the time, if I yielded now, I should not the less be made to repent some day of my former rebellion. His nature was not changed by one hour of solemn prayer, it was only elevated. I could decide if I were but certain, I answered, were I but convinced that it is God's will I should marry you. I could vow to marry you here and now, come afterwards what would. My prayers are heard, said St. John. He pressed his hand firmer on my head as if he claimed me. He surrounded me with his arm, almost as if he loved me. I say almost, I knew the difference, for I had felt what it was to be loved. But like him, I had now put love out of the question and thought only of duty. I contended with my inward dimness of vision, before which clouds yet rolled. I sincerely, deeply, fervently longed to do what was right, and only that. Show me, show me the path, I entreated of heaven. I was excited more than I had ever been and whether what followed was the effect of excitement, the reader shall judge. All the house was still, for I believed all, except St. John and myself, were now retired to rest. The one candle was dying out. The room was full of moonlight. My heart beat fast and thick. I heard its throb, Suddenly, it stood still to an inexpressible feeling that thrilled it through and passed at once to my head and extremities. The feeling was not like an electric shock, but it was quite as sharp, as strange, as startling. It acted on my senses as if their utmost activity hitherto had been but torpor from what which they were now summoned and forced to wake. They rose, expectant, eye and ear waited while the flesh quivered on my bones. What have you heard? What do you see? asked St. John. I saw nothing, 
And I heard a voice somewhere cry, Jane, 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 nothing more. Oh God, what is it? I gasped. I might have said, where is it? For it did not seem in the room, nor in the house, nor in the garden. It did not come out of the air, nor from under the earth, nor from overhead. I had heard it, where or whence, forever impossible to know. And it was the voice of a human being, a known, loved, well-remembered voice, that of Edward Fairfax Rochester, and it spoke in pain and woe, wildly, eerily, urgently. I'm coming, I said. Wait for me. I will come. I flew to the door and looked into the passage. It was dark. I ran out into the garden. It was void. Where are you? I asked. The hills beyond Marsh Glen sent the answer faintly back. Where are you? I listened. The wind sighed low in the firs. All was moorland, loneliness, and midnight hush. Damn superstition, I commented as that spectre rose up, black by the black yew at the gate. This is not thy deception, nor thy witchcraft. It is the work of nature. She was roused and did no miracle but her best. I broke from St. John, who had followed and would have detained me. It was my time to assume ascendancy. My powers were in play and in force. I told him to forbear question or remark. I desired him to leave me. I must and would be alone. He obeyed at once. Where there is energy to command well enough, obedience never fails. I mounted to my chamber, locked myself in, fell on my knees and prayed in my way, a different way to St. John's, but effective in its own fashion. I seemed to penetrate very near a mighty spirit, and my soul rushed out in gratitude at his feet. I rose from the thanksgiving, took a resolve, and lay down, unscared, enlightened, eager but for the daylight. Chapter 36 The daylight came. I rose at dawn. I busied myself for an hour or two with arranging my things in my chamber, drawers and wardrobe in the order wherein I should wish to leave them during a brief absence. Meantime, I heard St. John quit his room. He stopped at my door. I feared he would knock. No, but a slip of paper was passed under the door. I took it up. It bore these words. 
You left me too suddenly last night. Had you stayed but a little longer, you would have laid your hand on the Christian's cross and the angel's crown. I shall expect to hear your clear decision when I return this day, fortnight. Meantime, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit I trust is willing, but the flesh I see is weak. I shall pray for you hourly. Yours, St. John. My spirit, I answered mentally, is willing to do what is right, and my flesh, I hope, is strong enough to accomplish the will of heaven when once that will is distinctly known to me. At any rate, shall be strong enough to search, inquire, to grope an outlet from this cloud of doubt and find the open day of certainty. It was the first of June, yet the morning was overcast and chilly. Rain beat fast on my casement. I heard the front door open and St. John walk out. Looking through the window, I saw him traverse the garden. He took the way over the misty moors in the direction of Whitcross. There he would meet the coach. In a few more hours, I shall succeed you in that track, cousin, thought I. I too have a coach to meet at Whitcross. I too have some to see and ask after in England before I depart forever. I wanted yet two hours of breakfast time. I filled the interval in walking softly about my room and pondering the visitation which had given my plans for their present bent. I recalled that inward sensation I had experienced, for I could recall it with all its unspeakable strangeness. I recalled the voice I had heard. Again, I questioned whence it came as vainly as before. It seemed in me, not in the external world. I asked, was it a mere nervous impression, a delusion? I could not conceive or believe was more like an inspiration. The wondrous shock of feeling that had come like the earthquake which shook the foundation of Paul and Silas' prison. It had opened the doors of the soul's cell and loosened its hands. It had wakened out of its sleep, whence it sprang, trembling, listening, aghast, then vibrated thrice a cry on my startled ear and in my quaking heart and through my spirit, which neither feared nor shook, but exulted as if in joy over the success of one effort it had been privileged to make, independent of the cumbrous body. Ere many days, I said as I terminated my musings, I will know something of him 
his voice seemed last night to summon me. Letters have proved of no avail. Personal inquiry shall replace them. At breakfast, I announced to Diana and Mary that I was going on a journey and should be absent at least four days. Alone, Jane? They asked. Yes, it was to see or hear news of a friend about whom I had been for some time uneasy, I told them. They might have said, as I have no doubt they thought, that they believed me to be without any friends save them, for indeed I had often said so. But with their true natural delicacy, they abstained from comment except that Diana asked me if I was sure I was well enough to travel. I looked very pale, she observed. I replied that nothing ailed me, save anxiety of the mind, which I hoped soon to alleviate. It was easy to make my further arrangements, for I was troubled with no inquiries, no surmises. Having once explained to them I could not now be explicit about my plans, they kindly and wisely acquiesced in the silence with which I pursued them, according to me the privilege of free action I should under similar circumstances have accorded them. I left Moore House at three o'clock p.m. and soon after four I stood at the foot of the signpost of Whitcross, waiting the arrival of the coach which was to take me to distant Thornfield. Amidst the silence of the solitary roads and desert hills, I heard it approach from a great distance. It was the same vehicle whence, a year ago, I had alighted one summer evening on this very spot. How desolate and hopeless and objectless. It stopped as I beckoned. I entered, not now obliged to part with my whole fortune as the price of its accommodation. Once more on the road to Thornfield, I felt like the messenger pigeon flying home. It was a journey of six and thirty hours. I had set out from Whitcross on a Tuesday afternoon, and early on the succeeding Thursday morning, the coach stopped to water the horses at the wayside inn, situated in the midst of scenery whose green hedges and large fields and low pastoral hills How mild of feature and verdant of hue compared with the stern, North Midland moors of Morton, met my eye like the lineaments of a once familiar face. Yes, I knew the character of this landscape. I was sure we were near my bourne. How far is Thornfield Hall from here? I asked of the ostler. Just two miles, ma'am, across the fields. My journey is closed, I thought to myself. 
I got out of the coach, gave a box I had to the ostler's charge to be kept till I called for it, paid my fare, satisfied the coachman and was going. The brightening day gleamed on the sign of the inn and I read in gilt letters the Rochester Arms. My heart leapt up. I was already on my master's very lands. It fell again. A thought struck it. Your master himself may be beyond the British Channel for aught you know. And then, if he is at Thornfield Hall, towards which you hasten, who besides him is there? His lunatic wife, and you have nothing to do with him. You dare not speak to him or seek his presence. You have lost your labor. You had better not go further, urged the monitor. Ask information of the people at the inn. They can give you all they seek. They can solve your doubts at once. Go up to that man and inquire if Mr. Rochester be at home. The suggestion was sensible that I could not force myself to act on it, so I dreaded a reply that would crush me with despair. To prolong doubt was to prolong hope. I might yet once see that hall under the ray of her star. There was a stile before me, the very fields through which I had hurried, blind, deaf, distracted with a revengeful fury tracking and scourging me on the morning I fled from Thornfield, ere I well knew what course I had resolved to take, I was in the midst of them. How fast I walked, how I ran sometimes, how I looked forward to catch the first view of the well-known woods with what feelings I welcomed single trees I knew and familiar glimpses of meadow and hill between them. At last, the wood rose, the rookery clustered dark, a loud cawing broke the morning stillness. Strange delight inspired me. On I hastened, Another field crossed, a lane threaded, and there were the courtyard walls, the back offices, the house itself, the rookery still hid. My first view of it shall be in front, I determined, where its bold battlements will strike the eye nobly at once and where I can single out my master's very window. Perhaps he will be standing at it. He rises early. Perhaps he is now walking in the orchard or on the pavement in front. Could I but see him? What a moment. Surely in that case, I should not be so mad as to run to him. I cannot tell. I am not certain. And if I did, what then? God bless him. What then? Who would be hurt by my once more tasting the life his glance can give me? 
I rave. Perhaps at this moment he is watching the sun rise over the Pyrenees or on the tideless sea of the south. I had coasted along the lower wall of the orchard, turned its angle. There was a gate just there, opening into the meadow between two stone pillars crowned by stone balls. From behind one pillar, I could peep round quietly at the full front of the mansion. I advanced my head with precaution, desirous to ascertain if any bedroom window blinds were yet drawn up. Battlements, windows, long front, all from this sheltered station were at my command. The crows, sailing overhead, perhaps watched me while I took this survey. I wonder what they thought. They must have considered I was very careful and timid at first, and that gradually I grew very bold and reckless. A pee, and then a long stare, and then a departure from my niche, and a straying out into the meadow, and a sudden stop, full in front of the great mansion, and a protracted, hardy gaze towards it. What affectation of dividence was this at first, they might have demanded. What stupid regardlessness now. Here, an illustration, reader. A lover finds his mistress asleep on a mossy bank. He wishes to catch a glimpse of her fair face without waking her. He steals softly over the grass, careful to make no sound. He pauses, fancying she has stirred. He withdraws. Not for worlds would he be seen. All is still. He again advances. He bends above her. A light veil rests on her features. He lifts it bends lower. Now his eyes anticipate the vision of beauty, warm and blooming and lovely in rest. How hurried was their first glance, but how they fix, how he starts, how he suddenly and vehemently clasps in both arms the form he dared not a moment since touch with his finger, how he calls aloud a name and drops his burden and gazes on it wildly. He thus grasps and cries and gazes because he no longer fears to waken by any sound he can utter, by any movement he can make. He thought his love slept sweetly. He finds she is stone dead. I looked with timorous joy towards a stately house. I saw a blackened ruin. No need to cower behind a gatepost indeed, to peep up at chamber lattices, fearing life was astir behind them. 
No need to listen for doors opening, to fancy steps on the pavement or the gravel walk. The lawn, the grounds were trodden and waste. The portal yawned void. The front was as I had once seen in a dream, but a shell-like wall, very high and very fragile looking, perforated with painless windows. No roof, no battlements, no chimneys. All had crashed in, and there was the silence of death about it, the solitude of a lonesome wild. No wonder that letters addressed to people here had never received an answer. As well, dispatch epistles to a vault in a church aisle. The grim blackness of the stones told by what fate the hall had fallen, by conflagration. But how kindled? What story belonged to this disaster? What loss? besides mortar and marble and woodwork had followed upon it. Had life been wrecked as well as property? If so, whose? Dreadful question. There was no one here to answer it. Not even dumb sign, mute token. In wandering round the shattered walls and through the devastated interior, I gathered evidence that the calamity was not of late occurrence. Winter snows, I thought, had drifted through that void arch. Winter rains beaten in at those hollow casements, for amidst the drenched piles of rubbish, spring had cherished vegetation. Grass and weed grew here and there, between the stones and fallen rafters. And oh, where meantime was the hapless owner of this wreck? In what land? Under what auspices? My eye involuntarily wandered to the grey church tower near the gates, and I asked, Is he with Demare de Rochester, sharing the shelter of his narrow marble house Some answer must be had to these questions. I could find it nowhere but at the inn, and thither ere long I returned. The host himself brought my breakfast into the parlour. I requested him to shut the door and sit down. I had some questions to ask him. But when he complied, I scarcely knew how to begin. Such horror had I of the possible answers, and yet the spectacle of desolation I had just left prepared me in measure for a tale of misery. The host was a respectable-looking, middle-aged man. You know Thornfield Hall, of course, I managed to say at last. Yes, Mom, I lived there once, he answered. Did you? Not in my time, I thought. You are a stranger to me. I was the late Mr. Rochester's butler, he added. Late? 
I seemed to have received with full force the blow I had been trying to evade. The late, I gasped. Is he dead? I mean the present gentleman, Mr. Edwards's father, he explained. I breathed again. My blood resumed its flow, fully assured by these words that Mr. Edward, my Mr. Rochester, God bless him wherever he was, was at least alive, was in short the present gentleman. Gladdening words. It seemed I could hear all that was to come, whatever the disclosures might be, with comparative tranquility. Since he was not in the grave, I could bear, I thought, to learn that he was at the Antipodes. Is Mr. Rochester living at Thornfield Hall now? I asked, knowing, of course, what the answer would be, but yet desirous of deferring the direct question as to where he really was. No, ma'am, oh no. No one is living there. I suppose you are a stranger in these parts. You would have heard what had happened last autumn. Thornfield Hall is quite a ruin. It was burnt down just about harvest time. Dreadful calamity. Such an immense quantity of valuable property destroyed. Hardly any of the furniture could be saved. The fire broke out at the dead of night, and before the engines arrived from Millcote, the building was one mass of flame. It's a terrible spectacle. I witnessed it myself. At dead of night, I muttered. Yes, that was ever the hour of fatality at Thornfield. Was it known how it originated? I asked. They guessed, Mom. They guessed, indeed, I should say it was ascertained beyond a doubt. You are not perhaps aware, he continued edging his chair a little nearer and speaking low. There was a lady kept in the abs. I have heard something of it. She was kept in very close confinement, Mom. People, even for some years, was not absolutely certain of her existence. No one saw her. They knew her by rumour that such a person was at the hall and who or what she was was difficult to conjecture. They said Mr. Edward had brought her from abroad and some believed she had been his mistress. A strange thing happened a year since. A very strange thing. I feared now to hear my own story. I endeavoured to recall him to the main fact. And this lady? I asked. This lady, ma'am. He answered, turned out to be Mr. Rochester's wife. The discovery was brought about in the strangest way. There was a young lady, a governess, at the hall. But the fire, I suggested, I'm coming to that, ma'am, that Mr. Edward fell in love with. The servants say he never saw anybody so much in love as he was. He was after her continually. They used to watch him. Servants will, you know, ma'am. And he set store on her past everything. For all, nobody but him thought her so very handsome. She was a small little thing, they say. 
almost like a child. I never saw it myself. I've heard Leah, the housemaid, tell of her. And Leah liked her well enough. Mr. Rochester was about 40, this governess not 20. And you see, when gentlemen of his age fall in love with girls, they are often like as if they were bewitched. Well, he would marry her. You shall tell me this part of the story another time, I said. <laughs> 